0: Uh, the past few weeks, we've been discussing uh, the role in Scripture of these people known as the prophets, um, and right in the middle of your, most of your Bibles, um, if you have one like mine... Uh, there's an entire section dedicated to these remarkable people. Um, There's the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, and then there's the minor prophets like Amos and Jonah and Zechariah, among others. Uh, For the past several weeks, we've been unpacking what the words of these people meant to Israel and how it was looking forward and setting our gaze into the New Testament. And so... um, It is both uh, an opportunity to see and understand what Israel would have heard and how they would have uh, uh, received these words from the prophets, and it's also a window into what is to come and how to read the New Testament rightly. Uh, in week one of this short series that we've been in with the prophets, we talked about the pain and the anger of God that he is lamenting through the prophets of what he had hoped for uh, in this relationship with Israel and how it had fallen apart and in his sorrow in that and his frustration and his anger in that and then in week two, we talk, talked about the hope that begins to drip from the prophets that God would do something that he wasn't finished with with Israel and with his story um, and that he had a plan. And this week, we come to the conclusion in this time of looking at the prophets, and we're going to talk specifically around the suffering and the supremacy of God, the suffering and the supremacy of God as we hear it through uh, specifically the prophet Isaiah. So with that, we're in Isaiah 52, verse 13, we're going to go all the way through um, The end of 53. 25 verses, we can do it together, all right? Hang with me. 52, verse 13, and it says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we come before you and I, I want to say, Lord, with my brothers and sisters, um, the weight of this is more than we can carry. Um, the mystery of this is more than we can understand. By your spirit, Lord, would you awaken in us, God, um, what you have for us tonight, the words you have, the encouragement, um, the truth, the hope, and, God, the realization of your radical, long-suffering love for your people. Would you clear my mind, and God, would you cleanse my mouth, and would you make ears open to hear and hearts open to receive tonight by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, The prophets, as we've been saying uh, for the last couple weeks, played this really incredible role in the life of God's people. They were part priest, part guardian, part cultural commentator. Dave Lomas mentioned a couple weeks ago that one of the roles of the prophets was to to guard these covenants, these things called the covenants, these promises um, of God. He called them the covenant watchdogs. And so it's appropriate for us, before we dive into all that God is doing in the passages we just read, remember why he's doing it, that he had made these three specific promises to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. There was the the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, where he chose one man, and he said, through you, Abram, I am going to make a nation who will be a blessing to the the entire world. I will reveal myself to all of humanity through this man who becomes a nation and blesses the whole world. That was his first covenant. He makes a a covenant with Abraham. Abraham. And then there's a covenant at Sinai in Exodus 19 where God makes, uh, it's like a wedding that he, he makes these promises to Israel as a nation and, and, and tells them who they are, gives them an identity and, and tells them how to live, how to live into that identity as his people. And he makes pro- these promises to be with them as a nation. And then finally, the Davidic covenant, which was in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there would be a king that would come one day through the line of this man, Jesse, and he would establish a kingdom that would reign forever, and God would be with his people. These are the covenants and the promises uh, that God gives, and it's important we start there just uh, to remember those, because these are like the wedding vows that God makes to Israel. Now, I'm a pastor, I do a lot of weddings, uh, and, and maybe if you've been at weddings, you've seen some good ones, and you've seen some not so good ones, right? For me, the, the whole reason we gather at a wedding, I was at a wedding just yesterday, okay? The whole reason we made the trek out, and they got married in like the middle of nowhere, honestly, but we love them, and we were excited, so we went to go witness the promises that were being made, That was the purpose. It it wasn't the wine. It wasn't the dancing. It wasn't the, I mean, that stuff's fun too, but it it wasn't, the purpose wasn't the party. The purpose was the promises that were being exchanged between these two people before the Lord. And sometimes people do these promises right and sometimes they don't do them justice. When I'm counseling, uh, pre premarital counseling with couples who are getting married, I always talk about the vows. Like, please don't mess with the vows. Don't say things like... I promise to make you laugh every day. I promise that as long as we're together, you will always be happy. I promise to make you breakfast every Saturday. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Like, don't do that with the promises. You can't, first of all, you can't keep those promises. You don't, you have no control over most of those things. Don't mess with the promises. They, they are actually what hold the entire marriage together. Those promises are what holds this relationship together. It's not your feelings and all the other stuff. It's these promises that you make. So Noelle and I, my wife, we've been, we've been married 16 years this July, 16 years. Come on. I feel like we've earned it. Come on. 16 years this, this July, and listen, in that 16 years, six pregnancies, three miscarriages, three beautiful, talented, headstrong daughters, just like their mom, eight housing moves, two dogs, one epic trip to Europe, and the loss of one parent each in those 16 years. Now, when Noelle and I were 23 years old, July 1st, 2000, and we stood in front of the people we loved, and we made these promises to each other, we had no clue about any of this. We had no clue. You don't make the promises guaranteed on what the outcome, what, what's going to come down the road with a, with a foresight into that. You make the promises despite whatever comes down the road. And why that's important is because this is what holds all of what we're about to read together. It is the driving force of why God does what he does. It's because he made these promises to his bride, Israel, and through Israel to you and to me. It's a beautiful thing. And if you've ever experienced this kind of covenantal love, and it doesn't have to be marriage. It can be a friendship. It can be a, a, a parent uh, or a family member. Someone who makes this statement to you that I will be to you as I should even if you are not to me as you should. Our, our, my covenant, my promise, my relationship with you goes beyond how you treat me, what our circumstances are, any of that. If you've ever experienced that kind of Love. I want you just to pause for a minute and sit with, with that. Have you experienced that? Can you think uh, of, of a, a time, a place, a season, uh, someone you have in your life who has shown you just unmerited grace, just generous love and grace? If you have, I, I would argue that that, is, uh, that experience is as close to heaven on earth as you will have Hold on to it, sow into it. It's the, the most heavenly experience we have is to be unconditionally cared for and loved by another human being. It's this great gift that God gives us. And that is the context, that is the power, that is the driving force of everything we just read in Isaiah 52 and three. It should set uh, the course for us. And, and here's the deal with this passage um, it's called the, uh, it's the fourth of what are called the servant songs in Isaiah. They start in Isaiah chapter 40, and there are these little poetic glimpses of a gift that God is giving, this work that he's going to do, this movement of his love that's going to happen, and this is like the pinnacle, and as we were even praying tonight, there was this word, and I, and I think it's, it's true and it's really good, that this passage that we just read, is the true north of all of scripture. It's like the compass that keeps the, uh, the trajectory of where everything is going on course. Uh, it, it's, it's the goal, it's the bridge that takes all of this, this whole book, and it takes everything on the front end and it pulls it forward to, to restoration and reconciliation. To answer those questions, how is God going to to deal with us? How is he going to resolve the mess we're in? How is he going to fix all the things we've broken? It's a bridge that carries Israel and the whole story on the front end forward. And then it's the lens through which Jesus talks about himself. The gospels uh, used to decode what has happened in Christ's life is this passage and everything that Peter and Paul talk to the church about in the epistles, it's, it's this reckoning with what has happened, what, what is promised in Isaiah 52 and 53. So this is our true north. This is, this is our, our Golden Gate Bridge. Sorry, that was kind of cheesy, but I couldn't resist. Um, and listen, I don't know how to do justice <laughs> to this. I'm going to do my best, but this is like sacred ground that we're on. This is, this is heavy, weighty, theological, intense stuff that there's no way in the short amount of time we have that you can unpack everything that's being done and said here. I'm going to do my best, and the way we're going to try to do that together is to look at three thoughts, three movements that kind of progress us through uh, this servant song, uh, In Isaiah. The first uh, movement, the first thought is um, to be confident even in confusion. Confidence in confusion. First thought. Second, that we should be moved by the magnitude of what's happening. We should be moved by the magnitude of this passage. And finally, we should be committed. To the completion of what this begins, this movement, we should be committed to the completion of it. So first, let's let me explain what all these mean. First, um, be confident even in confusion. If this passage uh, in Isaiah is confusing for us, which it can be, the language, the, it's poetry. It's it's um, you know it's. Yeah, it can be really confusing. I'm having a hard time even putting words to it. Um, if it's confusing for us, imagine how it must have been for, for Israel. Remember the context. When they're hearing these words of Isaiah, this is a nation that has been overthrown, pulled into exile, scattered from their homeland, oppressed, wrestling with identity, who they are, and, and where's God? <laughs> What happened? How did we get here? And how will this be resolved? Or all those promises to Abraham to, at Sinai, to the, the David covenant, all those things, where, where's that? Where are those promises, Lord? So this is a nation wrestling with all of these things. And then you get these words. And, and in the very beginning, the first two verses we read, you get a little taste of the Christian life. You get a taste of the Christian life. Is it joy or pain? Yes. Is it sunshine or rain? Yes. Anybody know Rob Bass? Anybody? Okay. There's like 10 people here. Awesome. Never mind. So Isaiah 52, 13, this is where we begin. And and this is is the first words that uh, Israel would hear in this kind of movement. This servant song. It says, the servant of the Lord will be highly exalted, will be raised and lifted up, that this servant will act wisely. They will be successful. That, that word wisely, they will, be, they will act successfully. These are victorious words, right? These are good. Right? If you're a nation in exile, in slavery, in oppression, the loss of your homeland, and you hear this, you're like, all right, we're on the right track. It sounds like that king is coming. It sounds like the rescue, rescuer is on his way. This is good, and we're just in verse one. It must get so much better from here. Not so fast. Next verse. Isaiah 52, 14, Israel hears, when they looked on him, they were appalled. What? (laughs) What just happened? That word appalled, that's a strong word. When's the last time you were appalled by anything? Appalled. Like moved to like vomit. When's the last time you experienced that? What just happened to the highly exalted one? The servant is so disfigured by violence and torture, they're not even recognizable as human. What is going on here? What does this mean? How's Israel supposed to take this news? Is it good or is it bad? They don't know. And here's the deal God doesn't seem very concerned with explaining himself. Welcome to the Christian life. God doesn't seem very concerned with explaining himself here. Herein lies this lesson of the the walk with Christ. It is get confident in the confusion. I've heard people say, um, you know, I thought God brought me to San Francisco to do something great. And ever since I got here, it's just been trouble, just trouble after trouble. People sit in my office and they say, listen, I did everything I thought I was supposed to do. Like everything my youth pastor told me, Like I, that's what I did. I did my life right. I can't find a spouse. I can't find that loved one. What's the deal? hear people say, like you know, you know, at our startup, we pray every morning. We gather in there, and we pray for the We pray the business would be blessed to be a blessing, that God would, would prosper us so we can bless the, the city, and we're, we want to do all these great things, and it's not happening. What's the deal? There seems to be, in my experience, this cultural expectation in the Christian world that as we mature as Christ followers... At some point, we figure this thing out. I'm here to pop your bubble. Not true, not true. As a person who's been following Christ most of my entire life to varying degrees of enthusiasm, The more I learn about God and who he is and what his word says, the more and more I realized how little I understand who this God is. I hope that doesn't scare you. If your definition of a mature Christ follower is someone who ascends to this level of knowledge and understanding where everything makes sense now, I'm sorry to tell you, that hasn't been my experience. I'd like to recalibrate that definition. To me, a mature Christ follower, a mature follower of Christ is one who is continually filled with wonder of who God is. And has built the capacity to sit in the unknown. I believe that's a maturing process as a Christ follower, when you can continually be in wonder, in wonder, I know the character of God is good. What's happening to me right now, I don't understand. I can sit in the wonder, be filled with the wonder of who God is and be comfortable to sit in the unknown. Now this, hear me rightly, please. I'm not saying You should not read your Bible. We're in the year of biblical literacy, for goodness sake. Read your Bible. It's a good thing. I'm not saying you shouldn't be in community group wrestling with scripture and with your circumstances. Yes, that's a good and healthy thing to do. Those are healthy disciplines and exercises. Just don't expect to graduate. (laughs) Don't expect a diploma at the end of this ride. That's, there's no promise of that. In fact, in Matthew 18, there's this scenario where, where Jesus, these children come around Jesus and the disciples are like, come on, we're super busy, get out of here. And, and Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I tell you this, that if, if you want to enter my kingdom, you have to be like these. Now, what does that mean? To be like a, a child with God, with Christ. Christ. What does that mean? My kids have this innate trust when they get in the car with me that wherever we're going is a good destination. When they get in the car in the morning, they're not like, are we going to Vegas? Are you sure? Let me see the GPS. Do you know where you're headed? Are we going to get there on time? My wife does that, but my kids don't do that. My kids have this, this innate trust in who I am. That we're going to get to the destination and we will get there safely. Buckle in. And that seems to be this call of Christ is like, will you, just, will you just trust me? I know where I'm going. Just get in, buckle up. You can trust where I'm taking you. If we can do this, get this confidence, even in the confusing circumstances, it will help in the rainy seasons. It will help make them more bearable. As I've said, I mean, I've had by the time people get to my office, they're usually in despair. That's how by the time they make an appointment they get to my office, typically, not always, but people are like in a despair situation. And it's it's this theme of I thought God loved me, but then this thing happened. I thought God was with me. And then this thing happened. Where's God? What's the deal? And with those statements is this underlying belief, whether it's implicit or explicit. explicit. There's this, this statement of belief in the person that bad things are not supposed to happen to God's people. Let's pop your bubble again. I'm sorry. It's a, it's a rough night. You picked a tough night to be here. Welcome to church. That actually, when you're talking that way, bad things aren't supposed to happen to God's people. We're basically talking about karma at this point. You might as well carry like a rabbit's foot or something. You're as good off with that. There is no paradigm for that in what we just read. Actually, this paradigm of the suffering servant should should actually blow up that whole question. Like, why, I thought God loved me. Why are these bad things happening? Those two things are not mutually exclusive. (laughs) I know um, so many families just in our church alone who've gone through terrible suffering. Three-month-old babies die of cancer. (laughs) Spouses lost to sickness. Uh, terrible circumstances, watching the, your loved ones like deteriorate in front of you. Terrible suffering. And here's the remarkable thing, is what I have seen, what I've experienced as a pastor is those people who invite Christ into that circumstance. That does not mean they put on a happy face and isn't, thing, isn't everything so good? No, they weep and they lament and they cry out to God and they're angry with him and they voice all of it and there's a place for that and yet Christ is with them in that. I have heard people say it was worth it. That makes no sense. I've heard people say it was worth it. I have heard people say, I would do it again. I would have that baby again, even if it was only for three months. How do we reconcile that? It seems to be that God is bigger than the measure of our circumstances. God's character and and his ability to, to move in our life it is bigger than our circumstances. And actually, we could look back on suffering and say it was worth it. It's a remarkable thing. But it's what we should be okay with. I'm not saying go home and pray for suffering. I'm not saying you know, like a masochistic, like, yes, we are gonna be the church that suffers because we really love God. I'm not saying that. But it is coming, (laughs) you guys, it's coming. At some point, sometime, you will come across this place of suffering. And when you do, I I hope that you know this suffering servant can identify with with where you're at, has walked in that place. That's who our, our God is. And remarkably, God can take these circumstances Sometimes beyond even what we're able to see and do things in in incredible ways. As I was reading this, I'm reminded of the story of Joseph that we read in Genesis, which seems like forever ago. And Joseph was a good man. And Joseph, uh, he wasn't wicked. He was maybe a little prideful, um, but he wasn't a beast, you know. He wasn't wicked. He wasn't evil. And he lived through incredible suffering. Sold into slavery by his own family. Arrested on false charges and spent the vast majority of his adult life in prison. Just one thing after, and then he's forgotten in prison. After he helps other people, he's just forgotten there. And it isn't until the very end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, right before Joseph dies, he says these words to his family. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph could see just at the end of his own life God was doing something in these really difficult circumstances, and that was just the window of his own existence. You guys, we live in this fraction of the big story. This blink is our life. Joseph wouldn't know that over generations, that move that God did through his life establishes all of Israel as a nation. He had no idea God was doing that, and he wouldn't see it. And so this life, this, this confidence, it has a word, it has a name, and it's called faith. And it is a pillar of our life with God. Hebrews 11 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we don't see. Confidence in confusion and difficult circumstances. And it's worth asking, why do we need that? Like from the very two first verses out of the gate in Isaiah, we're, we're met with like victory and death together. What are we supposed to do with that? Why, why faith? Why do we need that? It's to reconcile, to sit with that, to sit with that conflict and be assured of the person behind the promise. Be assured of the person behind the promise. And so as we enter that life of faith, then um, we begin to see, as we even unpack this passage, the magnitude of what God has done. The magnitude uh, of this movement, of his love and of his grace. That question, Israel sitting in exile, how is God gonna make this right? How is he gonna restore all things? We were supposed to be the servant of God and we've blown it. Now what? We get the answer, Isaiah 53. Uh, Verses four through six say this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Isn't that what we just talked about? Like, oh, that bad thing must have happened. He must have been stricken by God. That's our context. Verse five, but he was pierced. There was a purpose for it. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us shalom, peace, oneness back with God was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took up our pain and suffering and transgressions. He lifted them off of us and took them on himself. Um, The picture I got of this, and I know every analogy breaks down, so take it with a grain of salt, but listen. I got this picture of, of a coat that you're, you're wearing. Just imagine this. This coat that you're wearing and on this coat, kind of like a trench coat down to the floor, it is inscribed with every terrible thing, every wicked, every malice, every evil intent, everything that you have brought into this world just in your own hands. And, uh, and you're carrying this coat, and through the course of your life, this coat becomes, becomes like a fur coat, and it's getting bigger, and, and it's actually taking over, and this coat, it's like out of Harry Potter, it begins to shout to everyone, like the things that you've done, the shame that you carry, all of your transgressions are just being just yelled out to the world, so much that this, this coat begins to become more of who you are than you, your, your, your identity gets lost. This is the picture I got of this passage. And, and it says that Christ comes and he reaches over your shoulders and he, he takes that coat from the willing giver. He takes it off of them and he puts it on himself and that it is still covered in, in filth. But he will... Silence it. He will restore it. He will clean it. He will make it right again. This is kind of the, the idea of what Christ is doing, what he has done. He's, these transgressions he takes off of us and he puts onto himself. And lest we think that, that Christ was a victim here, remember what he says in John chapter 10. Jesus says, uh, no one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. The right time, the right place, I lay my life down. And I have the authority to lay it down. And I also have the authority to take it up again. Praise the Lord. This command I received from my father. Jesus didn't have to die. Jesus didn't have to go through with this. There's this picture in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is wrestling with all that is, he knows is coming. He, he knew Je- uh, Isaiah 52 and 53. He knew what was coming. He was intimately familiar with it. And he's wrestling through it. And, and he, he makes this statement, Lord, not, not my will, but yours Be done, I lay down my life. Do you see the magnitude of what God is doing here? The prophets had been asking for this and calling for this. From the early stages of Israel's just turmoil, crying for justice and righteousness to come into the world. And they were supposed to be that. Israel was meant to be that. And when they blow it, they're like, how, Lord? When? How long? And God, in his faithfulness, he takes the burden of sin, the brokenness and all the injustice, and he turns it in on himself in Christ. And this is foretold, you guys, from the very beginning from the very beginning, this was his plan. How do we know that? If you go back to Genesis 15, God makes that, that covenant, that promise to Abraham. I'll make you a nation. I'll bless you so all the other nations will be blessed. He makes that promise in Genesis 12. And then he acts out in that promise. He makes a covenant a covenant um, ceremony with, with Abraham. And this, is, this was not uncommon. This is what would happen at weddings in this day and age. It, it was like uh, one father and another father uh, would say, would your son like to marry my daughter? Yes, daughter, she's going to marry your son. Kids don't get a choice. I really like that idea at this point in my life. I'd like to reinstitute that. Um, but two fathers would make this promise, this marriage covenant, and part of the wedding ceremony, they would take an animal and they would cut it open from neck to the bottom, and they'd flay it and lay it down. And would imagine this at like your wedding. Like all these people are standing around watching, and they're, they're making this promise. And the father says, "If my son does not fulfill his portion of the covenant, let me be like this." And then he walks through the body. If my son doesn't fulfill his promise in this covenant, let him become like this. And then, and then the, the daughter's father would do the same thing. If my daughter doesn't fulfill her promise in this covenant, let me become like this. And there are witnesses to it all. And, it's, and that is the picture. This is what happens. God's making this promise with Abraham. And then he acts it out. And they get a, a heifer and these different animals and they cut them open. And it says that, That Abraham is filled with dread. (laughs) Why? He can't keep that promise. And he knows it. He can't keep that promise. And God, in just this incredible move of grace, he puts Abraham to sleep. And then God himself goes through those cut open animals, and he knows that Isaiah 52 and 53 is coming. He knows that Jesus is coming. He says, I will be like this. I will be disfigured. I will be despised. I will be completely broken open. I will be that, and I will keep that promise. God knew this Do you see the magnitude? It should move us, you guys, when we think about the magnitude of God's grace and his love extended to us. That he makes this path flat and smooth and he lays it out in front of us. This is who I am and this is what I am doing for you. It's this incredible and powerful move of God. And so there can be a temptation as we go into um, this last thought. Um, this last thought is that we should be committed to completion, committed to completion. There can be a a temptation for us to think that now that I know what Christ has done, that, that Jesus paid it all, so my role now becomes go be a good person, go behave rightly. That can be the temptation when you hear about the atonement of what God has done. And I, I wanna tell you, it's so much more than that. The, what we've just read, this, this, this sacrifice of the servant, this movement of God, this extension of grace in love, this fulfillment of promise to us, to Israel, this is called God's atonement. Can we get that slide up there for just a moment? Atonement, it is this at one mint that God does, at one mint. It's this state of being, it's like refreshment is being in a state of being refreshed. Atonement is this state of being at one again with God. He has made shalom, what he intended in the garden. When it says in the cool of the night, he would walk with Adam and Eve. That was God's heart and his desire and relationship with you and with me. And so he makes a way where there is no way and he puts us back into atonement with himself. And it is not so that we can say, Jesus paid it all, that's my ticket into eternity. I'm just gonna be a good person now. It is so much greater than that. It's a commitment to completion, both a completion of yourself and a completion of the work God is doing in this world. Remember, um, at the end of Jesus' time with his disciples, he gives them this charge. It's called the Great Commission. And he says, Now go into all the nations and make disciples. What I have done with you, do with the people of all nations. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'll be with you always. Go into all the nations and make disciples. Do what I have done with you for the past three years. And what was that? He walked with his people. This call to completion, this commitment to completion, is not just going out and serving the poor. It is that. It is not just bringing reconciliation to your apartment building through loving your neighbor. It is that. But it's a completion of who you are that has worked out all of your life. You are Christ's disciple, and he wants that relationship with you. And so you will go through suffering seasons and you will go through joyful seasons and you will go through prosperous seasons and you will go through dry seasons and Christ wants in on all of it with you. It is how he forms you into Christ-likeness. It is not just a stamp of a ticket. Please don't treat those wedding vows that way <laughs> it is this commitment God has made to you. And when we receive that and we say, yes, I am Christ's disciple. Yes, I receive what Christ has done for me. And now I allow it to work out in every area of my life. You are saying back to God those vows of commitment, those wedding vows. You're saying them back to Christ. I'm in. Thick and thin. Unconditional. Unconditional. And you work that out the rest of your life, you work that out. And when you do, then there is this completion that happens in your family. And there's this completion that happens in your neighborhood. And there's this completion that happens in the way you understand work. It reforms everything. That is exactly what Christ came to do. Now you are that servant that he always intended to be the light To the world. Let's pray. God, I um, just recognize tonight that there um, is a whole spectrum of experience that is hearing these words in this room. There are some that may have never heard this testimony of your grace and your love before. I pray that you would meet them in all of the swirling thoughts and even the hopes and even the confusion. There are some, God, that have heard this a thousand times and that just want to pick it apart theologically. (laughs) I thank you, Lord. Would you meet those people? Remind them of your deep love, of your abidingness with them. It would be okay to not understand sometimes. There would be some, Lord, in this room that have been running from you. Would you remind them of your wide open arms, God? That father who watches on the horizon for his son or daughter to come home. It's the picture that you give us in the gospels, Lord. Would they experience that kind of love from you tonight? God, they're self-righteous, Lord. I feel like they're... They've, They've been living rightly. They've been doing good. Lord, I pray for humility in this room tonight. To say we don't have it figured out and and our righteousness is filthy rags, Lord. That's what you tell us. So in all of this, God, and everything in between, I pray for just a great exchange tonight between your sons and daughters and their Good and loving Father, would you meet us, God, in our response to you? As we sing words, God, would they connect with our heart and our spirit? Thank you that you are not far off from us, and your arm is not too short to rescue us. And would you meet us in this time of response, in Jesus' name, amen.